Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme today by James Scott. James is the campus principal of Stockport College, a further education institution in Stockport, Cheshire, which merged with Trafford College in 2018 to form the Trafford College Group. James, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme today. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, James, for taking the time to join us. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to first and foremost establish your take on leadership. So if we take that word leader aside for a second and just explore that in a little bit more depth, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you. What should a leader be in your eyes? For me, a, a leader is somebody who is somebody who sort of sets the vision sets the tone and, and sets the culture for an organisation. And certainly in terms of the, the FE sector, that role is very much around balancing an awful lot of, of competing agendas, a lot of conflicting issues. FE is an incredibly complex sector. And, you know, as, as colleges, we deal with all sorts of provision from young people, adults, apprentices, people looking to do commercial training, higher education. So for me, leadership is about basically bringing all of those things together in a coordinated way and really setting the tone and the vision for an organisation to be able to deliver on a number of, of competing fronts. Mm. And when we talk about leadership, um, we think of management as being something which is sort of separate to that, but something which has a little bit of overlap. And I think that's especially the case when it comes to people management, isn't it? As a leader, I think you have to be able to sort of take people with you. You have to be a good communicator and people management therefore becomes an inevitable sort of part of that. Um, Considering that, of course, you're managing a lot of conflicting agendas, but also not just, of course, fellow adults and staff members, but also young people as well. How is it from a people management perspective? What would you say your sort of leadership model in that sense is? I mean, people management is, is very much around making sure people understand their sort of role and responsibility in the organisation. Again, being very complex uh, as an institution, those roles look very different in different parts of the organisation. A higher education lecturer role is quite different, for example, for somebody who is teaching 16 to 18-year-olds on, on sort of full-time A-level programs. So it's really about getting people to understand roles and responsibilities and, and sort of how they fit into the organisation and what sort of objectives that they're delivering on in, in their respective areas. I mean, your point about leadership and, and management is a good one because for me, it's sort of two sides of the same coin. And the best leaders, for me, are people who can also manage because, you know, there are times when, yeah, you are setting strategy, you are setting direction, you are very outward-facing as a leader, working with your community, working with stakeholders. But equally, you need to know the detail of your organisation. You need to know your organisation through and through what's working, what isn't working, and be able to go into that detail and work with people to identify solutions at quite a granular level when it's required. And I know people have sort of different views on that, but for me, the best leadership is, is where you can manage both of those things effectively. Exactly, and I think it takes positive leadership at this point in time especially just to keep things ticking over the COVID-19 pandemic of course is an unprecedented crisis for all of us and it's had a significant impact on not just further education but education as a whole along with many other sectors as well uh, tell me for an institution such as yourselves how has it been attempting to navigate the challenges of the COVID pandemic from a leadership point of view I can imagine it's been quite tricky 
Yeah, it's been it's been incredibly tricky because obviously you know we've had to sort of balance a lot of a lot of expectations, um, a lot of fears, um, a lot of issues from from both our students, our staff, and our stakeholders. And really, for us, it's been about how do we maintain a good educational provision throughout this period. So since March, we've obviously been in a, a lockdown period, and at that point, schools and colleges. Um, pretty much needed to close their doors to all but the most vulnerable people in our society. And as a college, we did exactly that. We, we remained open for a small number of people who really needed to still come into the college, still get support, still get education in a physical environment um, on campus. But then what we did was we shifted all of our education online so that young people, adults, higher education students could continue to study from home. And basically, we, we took a technological solution in terms of Microsoft Teams, and we put our entire curriculum onto that platform. And we had students be able to work independently, but also work with teachers contacting them through remote platforms such as Microsoft Teams to be able to deliver those lessons where they were at home. And through that, we managed to keep people in education, keep them motivated, keep them learning, and made sure that, you know, for the vast majority of our students, they were able to complete their qualifications this summer um, and be successful. And just to give you a sort of example of how in an FE college, that's a little bit more complex than schools. There's a kind of understanding in you know sort of society at large that, well, most qualifications just got kind of written off this summer um, in terms of GCSEs and A-levels. There was no summer examination series. Um, the Secretary of State quite rightly gave professionals the, the sort of autonomy to judge how their students would have achieved set grades at a centre-based level to make sure the students got those qualifications but without having to continue to study and sit those examinations in the summer. Well, in FE College, we have an awful lot of different qualifications, many of them practical-based, where students did need to come in and complete them because there are things that you can't do um, remotely if you aren't able to demonstrate particular skills in things like hospitality, um, carpentry and joinery, brickwork, engineering, etc. So from the 15th of June, we've actually had small numbers of students coming on site to actually complete their qualifications. And that creates all sorts of issues around, you know, making sure health and safety requirements are fully in place, that staff and students um, feel safe, that they feel secure about coming in and being able to complete those qualifications in what is still a very uncertain time and, and a lot of sort of, you know, anxiety about the situation. So managing all that complexity has been basically what we've been sort of dealing with since since March. Obviously as well, we've now got the situation of a reopening in September. Um, and obviously the, the sort of steer has been given quite rightly from the government that, you know, they want young people back into education fully uh, from September. But, as a college, you know, again, there's a lot of complexity around that because the guidance being given for adults is different to, say, young people. So we're trying to manage how do we offer our curriculum safely in September where we can maintain social distancing for adults, that we can teach young people in groups in the so-called bubbles um, that the sort of guidance has, has given and do that safely but also making sure students can, can access their education and, you know, as I'll no doubt go on to in a minute, that means to some extent, some of the things we put in place over the summer 
around remote learning, etc., different ways of studying are going to have to continue. Mm, I think you're absolutely right in saying that some of the features of this lockdown period, such as that remote style of working, could end up being a more permanent part of the way that further education operates, definitely. Um, one thing I'm interested to understand um, as well, uh, James, is that how uh, is how, is it, how it's been from a mental health perspective during this uh, last few months, because obviously it's quite challenging managing a pandemic. People react to different things differently, let alone a crisis such as this. So for staff members, some might be able to sort of just carry on um, sort of as normal and still keep themselves motivated. Whereas for others, there might be just that little bit more apprehension that you've got to keep on top of. But as well as, of course, looking after the mental health of your staff members and yourself as well. There's also the pupils in this instance as well who are suffering from that sort of social isolation as a result of the lockdown. So that's a whole new dimension to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly for students, prior to the lockdown and the COVID situation, I mean, we've done an awful lot of work over the last few years around mental health um, and well-being for, for our students and our staff. And a lot of the work we've done, we were able to carry on during the lockdown. It settled up very well for the situation we were faced with. We have a team of people in the college called pastoral support mentors who provide one-to-one support for students and also group sessions around key mental health um, and well-being teams and all that's continued remotely so our mentors are already working with a group of each one with a group of students who have got mental health issues who have got challenges around support vulnerabilities and they continued that engagement throughout the lockdown period keeping in touch with them remotely checking in some cases daily checking in with them is everything okay have you got what you need is there any more support we can give you we work with a huge range of partners in, in both of our key local authorities of Stockport and Trafford, where if people need more help than we can give, we can get them into the right support, the right intervention, and we maintain those links throughout the lockdown. We made all our students aware of which services were still providing over the lockdown period and how those services were being provided and how students could access it. In addition to, to that team, we also have a college counsellor because, you know, a, a key issue we hear nationally is about waiting lists for young people to be able to access counselling services because of the demand on those services. So we actually employ a college counsellor who can get people seen very, very quickly. And that counsellor continues to operate remotely over the lockdown period. They continue to have appointments with the students who needed that support. And as soon as things started to relax slightly in June, we've moved that to an on-site service for those very vulnerable students who think they need the face-to-face as opposed to the, the remote. Wider than that, though, so you're talking there about sort of individual support, but wider than that, we've done a lot of work in the community to support students throughout this sort of period. And, and some of that is to do with, with mental health. Some of that is also to do with, with vulnerability and poverty. So just a couple of examples on that. One of the things, that we set up very quickly was what we call the community college kitchen. And that's where we've delivered care packages to over 400 students across Trafford and Stockport. And these are students who might normally receive three college meals, but because of a lockdown period, you know, they weren't able to get those, um, those sort of products and, and, and that support in college. So therefore we had staff and council volunteers working with us to go out into the community and deliver those packages to some of our most vulnerable students. So you've got the individual support element, but you've also got that more community-focused drive in terms of what can we do 
beyond just being a provider of education to support the community at large. And what we decided very quickly when we went into lockdown was that as a college, we had a civic duty to be able to do more in the community around this situation. And, and, you know, we're not unique. I think most colleges have done that. I think many other institutions, you know, beyond the education sector have taken a very leading role in terms of what more can we do for our local community. And so those are some of the ways um, in which we've been working to to support those students with vulnerabilities. And indeed, we continue to do so. And I think there's certainly going to be a need for those services going forward as well, because even when colleges and schools return in earnest from September, it's not going to be the same sort of classroom environment that people have been used to. Um, And when we begin to sort of embrace the challenges of the uh, the new normal in the education sector from that period, what do you envision panning out over the next 12 to 18 months for yourself, James, for the Trafford College Group? And what do you really hope to achieve as a collective as we sort of get to grips with these issues? Well, I think first and foremost, our priority is to get people back safely for September. It's to get all our students engaged in learning fully. And, you know, that, that will still be a mixed economy because, you know, in some groups we have 30 plus in a group and classrooms are quite small. So, you know, in order to meet health and safety requirements, we are going to still have a balance of on-site and remote learning. But actually, you know, we think that's the right thing to do because if you look beyond the COVID situation, the fact that we've been able to put all our curriculum online means that we can actually um, have students access our curriculum where otherwise there might have been difficulties. So for me, that is going to be a very sustainable and positive outcome from what has been a, a very a very difficult situation. But as I said, first and foremost, staff and students back safely in September in full learning. Key to that is many of our students will have been out of education since March. They won't have been studying those coming through from key stage four will not have done much learning since March, given the decisions made about their GCSE qualifications. So for us, it's that very early intervention to get them quickly back into education, understand what their starting points are, you know, what are their individual ambitions, where is their current skills and knowledge base at, and what do we need to do very quickly to settle them in um, and get them learning on their new qualifications. So that's the key priority. But then beyond that, what we're already working on is what you've articulated before as the new normal. So what does this mean for us in the future? And we think there is an opportunity out of this difficult situation to embrace different forms of technology to support students outside the classroom. You know, we've now got a situation where having put our curriculum online, we can do that. And for me, that's not necessarily about making things more efficient or, you know, cutting costs. I mean, some people might have that idea. But for me, it's about promoting inclusion. Because the more we can do outside of the classroom, you know, for people who are maybe having difficulties of, of coming into college, people who may still be shielding, people who may have non-COVID-related issues, but for whatever reason, they can't access the institution physically. You know, by doing this, we can promote inclusion and their access so they can continue learning. And that has to be the way going forward. It also has implications in terms of ways of working. I mean, I think it's probably fair to say the education sector has lagged behind the sort of more sort of commercial and business sectors in terms of promoting more flexible ways of staff being able to work, you know, in terms mm. of the hours staff work, in terms of being able to work remotely, work from home. And so we're already having those discussions. I mean, obviously, to some extent, being a student-facing institution, a lot of our activity has to be on site. You can't get away from that. A lot of our staff 
needs to be on site because we deal with students and a campus. But equally, there are many functions we do, back office functions, support services, etc., that we can deliver remotely. And just going back to the example earlier about uh, staff supporting students with mental health issues, our staff providing that remote support throughout the lockdown period have found doing it remotely rather than on campus has actually been far more beneficial. Easier in some cases to get hold of students, more flexible ways of getting hold of students. And so we're looking at how do we retain a balance of on-site support, but also remote support that can provide more timely interventions for students who need it. But then the other thing we're thinking about is, does the current situation potentially give us opportunities for new markets? Does it give us opportunities for new areas of, of business and provision we, we haven't kind of got to grips with? One example of that is we've currently started a project where we're developing a fully online curriculum for young people who are isolated. So we do know in our communities, there are a number of young people, you know, so-called niece, who for whatever reason can't come out of their home. You know, they don't want to engage in an education setting. They're not in work. In, in, in some cases, this may be because of lack of motivation, lack of ambition. In some cases, there are more serious considerations around mental health issues, anxiety, depression, etc. But by us being able to put a curriculum fully online, we can start to engage with those students. We can start to engage them in education without having to come into the college. And then over time, start that transition of building their confidence, building their skills, and hopefully progressing them um, into the workplace via apprenticeships or traineeships. But equally, you know, we think there's an opportunity here, particularly around adult education. Adults, you know, very busy lives, lots of commitments, and trying to expect adults to come in full-time to college or expect adults on part-time courses to commit every week at a certain, you know, a certain time uh, every, every week, every evening. That can be a really big challenge. But by putting the curriculum online, by delivering things more flexibly, we can engage more adults in education because then they can juggle challenges of childcare issues, work, all the other things they've got going on in their lives with being able to still access education and training. And we know that's going to be really important post-COVID with the employment situation, with giving adults the opportunity to upskill, change their career or get back into work. Being able to do the education and training piece more flexibly has got to be a really good opportunity for all. So those are just some of the things we're, we're thinking about over the sort of next 12 to 18 months. And let's certainly hope that those hopes are borne out in the best way possible. Um, I think, James, you know, given how informative it's been having you join us on uh, today's programme, I actually think it would be fantastic to perhaps catch up in the next year or so at some point just to see what the new normal is shaping up to be like in the further education sector and just assess what exactly is going on and how everybody is adapting to these changes that are coming in. That would be fantastic, yeah. I think it would be great as well because it's one thing of course speculating on what the future might bring and then it's another just assessing what has happened and just looking at how those hopes have been borne out. It's been a real pleasure James I must say having you join us on the uh, the programme today and a really insightful experience for myself and for those listening in and most importantly until we do hopefully speak again in future do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because we still don't know exactly which direction the pandemic's going to go in but let's hope it's an upward trajectory only from here. No, absolutely. And thank you very much indeed. My pleasure to have joined you this morning. Thank you. 
That was James Scott speaking, campus principal of Stockport College. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State and Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in August of 2015. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save 
the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce, and I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more 
seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary, often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. 
So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up 
uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. 
I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so I very much if I were in government and I always think of things in that context what would I do if I were in government I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, 
led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sakir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's 
major challenge is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn Mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.